welcome everyone to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interview Professor Hunter Rawlings, President Emeritus and Professor Emeritus of Classics at Cornell University. Recently, I met up with Professor Rawlings. He and I spent our time together discussing the study of Thucydides' classic work, The History of the Peloponnesian War. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded at the Rawlings' home in Washington, D.C. This is part one of a two-part interview. Well, Professor Hunter Rawlings, it's so good to see you again. Thank you for hosting me today here at your beautiful home in Washington, D.C. Thank you. It's always a pleasure for me to talk about the classics, so any chance I get, I'm eager to do so. I understand you're fresh back from a a trip to Europe. We just took a uh, 10-day trip to uh, the Danube River, first time we've done a riverboat uh, like that. And uh, it was a lot of fun, took us through some historic parts of uh, Hungary and Austria and Bavaria. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, very nice. Well, I'm so glad that you had that time abroad, and um, I'm glad to see that you had a couple of days to recover in time for the (laughs) Kane Academy podcast, which I'm sure is your top priority this week. (laughs) Well, the jet lag is mostly over, so I think we'll be okay. Well, you you look great. You look fresh and, and alert. I really appreciate it. So I'd like to touch, uh, start off here by touching a little bit on a biographical note. Uh, most of our listeners are teachers, and I think it would be really encouraging to them to know a little of your own story. How did you come to a career as a classicist, a professor and a scholar? Well, I'll try to make this relatively brief, um, but I do remember fairly well that my mother started reading me Greek myths when I was a little kid. And um, she this really. Is Norfolk, Virginia, is yes, that where you grew up? Yeah. That's right, in Norfolk, Virginia. My mother was from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and had had a, a very nice education in the humanities. Mm. Um, was one of the women of her generation who went to college and mm. studied Romance languages. So mm. her French was quite good, and her Spanish and Italian were reasonably good, mm. better than mine. <laughs> and um, she really encouraged me to study Latin, which of mm. course was the basis for all of those Romance languages. Mm. So I did that as a young teenager. And unlike some kids, I didn't mind the Latin too yeah. much. It was rigorous. Yeah. Was this a private or public school? This was at a public school first, um, but then the public schools in Norfolk, Virginia closed down when I was in seventh grade uh, because of massive resistance to integration. Ah. And my parents, uh, the schools were closed for Mm. a year, year and a half, and my parents said, um, you're not going to miss school, so we're going to try to earn some extra money and have you go to a private school. So I wound up going to Norfolk Academy, which was a day school, Mm -hmm. Um, small classes, very good Latin teacher, actually, Um, So I got a pretty good education there and then went on to Haverford College, a Quaker college outside of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And my mother was, again, part of the influence for that because Mm -hmm. she grew up nearby in Delaware. Mm -hmm. And she always felt that Quakers were especially good educators. Mm -hmm. The Friends schools are pretty famous, of course. And then Haverford and Swarthmore and other Mm -hmm. colleges are Quaker in their foundation. And at Haverford, I just loved uh, the education because um, I could study Latin and Greek, philosophy, history, with really fine professors. Mm -hmm. There were no graduate programs at Haverford, so Mm -hmm. everything was oriented towards the undergraduates. Mm -hmm. 
classes were great. Um, I took astronomy because I needed a lab science, <laughs> and um, that worked out fine because the labs met only on Monday nights when it was clear, and it wasn't clear very many Monday nights. So <laughs> <laughs> I got through um, science with relative ease. Um, but anyway, it was a really nice education, and um, I liked the Greek a lot. I started that in my sophomore year in college. It was hard, frankly, very hard, uh, and it took me a while to feel any kind of confidence with, with Greek. It wasn't until the third year that I felt I could actually read a sentence without pulling up the dictionary, mm-hmm. the translation, the commentary, and just try to read. Um, so it really was a test, but... Uh, I liked it, mm. and then went to grad school mm. um, to do a Ph.D. at Princeton. Mm-hmm. At Haverford, did you fall in love with any particular Greek writers? Um, I did not, because I think I was struggling so much to master the Greek mm-hmm. that I couldn't appreciate the authors as much as I wanted to. Mm. Um, I remember reading Plato wasn't so hard, and the Apology of Socrates was something I could really get my uh, arms around, so that was... Um, that was that felt good finally, and I, and I read I think the Alcestis uh, of Euripides in Greek, and that wasn't too terribly hard, but by the time I got to grad school, um, my Greek was coming along. The Latin was pretty strong, and um, in grad school, of course, you do a lot of very advanced work, um, and that's when I became technically a little more proficient. Mm-hmm. Now, did you end up doing your dissertation on Thucydides? I did. Um, funny story, I started to do it on some um, Hittite texts because, believe it or not, I was studying Sanskrit and Hittite, <laughs> and I thought uh, there's a open realm there for dissertation because not so many scholars worked in those areas. But um, fortunately, I came under the influence of uh, Robert Connor, really wonderful professor at Princeton, who said, you know, I think you'll be better off if you focus on something in a major Greek author. Mm -hmm. It's going to stand you better for your career. And he taught me a class in Thucydides that was just remarkable. And the reason I think it had such an impact on me is that Thucydides wrote about a war. And we were in the midst of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And my friends and classmates were either in the service, going to Vietnam, or they were busy protesting the war because Quakers, as you know, are mostly pacifists Mm -hmm. and were very strongly opposed to any kind of war. Mm -hmm. So my generation was caught up in that conflict in some very personal ways. And the first graduate course that spoke to me personally, and in fact viscerally, was the class in Thucydides, which is a deep analysis of what war actually is. And the Peloponnesian War was not a glorious war like the Persian Wars, where the Greeks emerged victorious over an enemy. Instead, it was like a civil war, Mm. Greek against Greek, Spartan against Athenian. And Thucydides tells that story with a deep understanding of the agony of war. Mm. Uh, For those of us who who lead our students in in the study of the history of the Peloponnesian War, Could you lay out for us kind of the key historical events, the salient historical events that any of us ought to know as we we read the great text with our students? I guess... um, And and you've already touched on on one or two of them, but I just thought, you know, just kind of a a good, a little primer 
I said, look, if you're really going to do a good job leading your students, these are the kinds of things you, you need to, to study and, and be versed in. So that's a big question, but let me try to break it into a few uh, parts. Um, the war put Athens, a great sea power, against Sparta, a very strong land power. So it's an interesting war in the sense that these two military mites were not equal to each other at all. And that meant that the war went on for a very long time because it was difficult for Sparta to defeat Athens since Athens had control of the sea. And it was difficult for Athens to defeat Sparta because on land, Sparta was virtually invincible along with its allies. So the war lasted 27 years. And I think that's the most salient thing that all of us should keep in mind. This was not a short war or a medium-length war. This was a very long war. Secondly, the war was not fought 8,000 miles from home, the way some of America's wars in recent generations have been fought. The war was fought at home, and it was almost daily during the campaigning season, and it involved all the citizens because all the citizens were expected to fight. An Athenian, for example, could be expected to be called up for battle between ages 18 and 60. So you didn't drop out of the military when you were 34 or when you had done five years. You were liable to service. So what I'm trying to get across is that with the length and the full citizen participation, this war was intense in a way that I don't think we can easily appreciate. Mm. Everyone involved every day for 27 years. Hmm. That takes a toll. And Thucydides' history is designed to describe the toll it took. Hmm. Not simply on people's lives, many, many Athenians and Spartans died, but on morale, on spirit, and on ethics. And what he describes, in essence, is the gradual degradation of Greek ethics during that war. That is a beautiful uh, description. Um, Civil War historians have the number of of lives lost during the Civil War climbing close to 800,000 now. So we continue to discover, you know, burial sites. Do we have any kind of statistics that would indicate the level of carnage over the 27 years? That's a good question, and we, the brief answer is we do not have good statistics, but Thucydides does give us some on the Athenian side, mm-hmm. because he was an Athenian and, in fact, a general for several years before he was sent into exile. And the numbers are very bad, Uh, not only from the war, but from the plague that struck Athens Mm -hmm. in the second year of the war. So that plague, which was made more intense by the fact that the Athenians were now holed up behind their walls, Mm. not out in the countryside where many of them lived, but all of them forced inside the walls of the city by the Spartan army. Um, That combination of war and plague... Mm decimated the Athenian population 
um, the number of hoplites, that means the infantry, uh, lost in the plague itself was very high, something like a, th- a quarter of the hoplite population. And that's just from the plague. Um, and then you have uh, so many others dying. He had no idea, obviously, how many of the poorer citizens died, but it was a large number. And they died particularly from being cooped up close to each other so that the plague could run amok. It was highly contagious. And in fact, Thucydides tells us in a brief passage, he himself caught the plague and survived it, which was unusual. And he says, you know, for those citizens who got the plague and survived, there was a giddy feeling that now you were going to live forever. That since you survived that, yeah, yeah. you were yeah. immortal. Yeah. And I just often think about that because he's describing himself when he says that. Yeah. He must have felt giddy. Yeah. Do, do we have bookend uh, numbers, roughly, the number of Athenian citizens uh, at the beginning and the end of the war? So we estimate those. The estimates are fairly good. They're by no means exact. But we think that the number of adult male citizens in Athens during the height of the Athenian Empire was about 50,000, 5 50,000. The um, number of adult females would have been somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. One or two children per family. They didn't have large families. It was not a wealthy population. And then they had a number of resident aliens because Athens was a rich city sure. comparatively, and so many people moved there even though they could not get citizenship. And then they had slaves. They owned quite a few slaves. So we think the population overall of Attica, the area around Athens, was maybe 300,000, of whom 50,000 were adult male full citizens. Mm-hmm. Of that population, we think at least half died during this period. Mm-hmm. Either from uh, from battle or from the plague. Right. Yeah. Uh, by the start of the war, uh, has the profile of the Athenian citizen changed significantly between or you know since the Persian Wars? Because we think about <clears throat> we think about Athens and you know sort of the the typical mindset of a of a beginning student looking at Athens. They they want to think about Athens as the the great uh, uh, giver of democracy, the great developer of architecture, literature, right? And, uh, of course, we, we will run towards the, the building of the empire, tremendous wealth acquired by Athens. But, right. you know, we, I think the, the, the students will typically think of Athens as the place that gave us democracy. And, but but that's, um, that's a rough story, isn't it? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a high mark and there are low marks. And so how, how should we think about that as we're guiding our students? So that's another um, very good question that requires a fairly long answer, but maybe the best way to sum it up is that Athenian democracy began about 510 B.C., so about 80 years before the Peloponnesian War began. So think of the democracy as 80 years old. Their democracy was vastly different from ours, they had what we call a direct democracy. In other words, the citizens came together and voted on all important policy. 
unlike us, they did not have a representative democracy or a republic where we elect people to make the major decisions for us, they would have found that a terrible form of government Mm -hmm. because it takes major decisions out of your hands as a citizen and gives them to someone else. So for the most part, they chose their officials not by election, but by lottery, in which for many of the positions, all citizens were eligible. So you might be a very poor man living in your neighborhood, but if your name is pulled out of a hat, you could wind up with a fairly responsible position in that democracy for one year. They limited their positions to one year. They didn't want to have someone in office for a very long time. They were very worried about tyranny, someone taking over power. Very worried, because they had had tyrants before the democracy. So we're talking about a government that began to grow in confidence during those 80 years, and certainly building up a naval empire helped them feel confident, because the people who rode the ships that gave them their power were the poor citizens. So think of that for a moment. Mm -hmm. How can you sustain a democracy in a world that was mostly autocratic or tyrannical? Uh, The Persian king, the king of Sparta, these, these were the typical forms of government at the time. The Athenians went in the opposite direction, and part of it is because poor citizens were responsible for Athenian power. And that gave them a confidence and a camaraderie that they would not otherwise have had. Hmm. What's, what's the profile of the non-poor uh, citizen? Is, is he a farmer? Is he a merchant? Uh, so that's a good question. The Athenians divided themselves into four economic classes, and these were formal. So the highest class were typically very large farmers, far- farmers who had big land holdings. Hundreds of acres, thousands? Hundreds of acres. Hundreds. Not thousands, but hundreds of acres. And uh, much of what was grown in Athens was um, the vine for wine, uh, for oil of all mm-hmm. kinds. Mm-hmm. And the Athenians uh, exported quite a lot of uh, oil, olive oil, and also the pottery that held the olive oil. You've seen the, the beautiful sure. pots in museums. They became more valuable than what they were holding, Mm -hmm. namely the olive oil. So the Athenians had a market, and and it was a big market, and it extended through the Aegean Sea and even large parts of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. That's where their wealth came from, along with their military empire. So the first class then, the top class, are the wealthy landowners. The next class down were what we would call knights, that is, men who served in the cavalry in the Athenian land force. And they had to be wealthy enough to support a horse and the training of a horse for the cavalry. It's a relatively small number of people. By the way, the first class was very small, Mm -hmm. that top class of big, big farmers. And and the night class, are they they occupied uh, in times of peace? Are they, are they doing something else commercially, or are they, they pretty much training and or sort of a standing army? So unlike Sparta, which was sort of a full-time army, mm-hmm. the Athenians conducted their military exercises on the side, so to speak, because they were busy with their own farms, uh, their 
uh, merchant jobs and so on. So I think it's fair to say that for the Athenians, military service was required, but it was not something that occupied a large portion of your time. They were busy with other things. And the knights would have been busy, especially, I think, with uh, mercantile ventures. The third class are the hoplites, the infantry, and they have to have enough wealth to own their own bronze armor, their shields, their swords, their spears. And um, that means they are roughly equivalent to what we would call a middle class, but you don't want to use terms like that too much because they provide probably an inaccurate picture. And then the lowest class, which they called thetes, were the citizens who had the least amount of property. In fact, many of them owned almost no property. But they rode in the Athenian fleet. They served on Athenian juries, and they were paid to serve on the juries. And by the way, that gave Athens another very strong sense of democracy because there was nothing a poor man liked better than to serve on a jury that was adjudicating a case of a rich man. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the juries were large. They were 200 members or 300 or 500. We have 12-person juries. Yeah. They had 200-person juries. Yeah. Why? Because they wanted to avoid any opportunity for bribery. They wanted a large number of citizens to serve and make decisions. So the, the, the larger the number, um, obviously the, the greater the task of the one who would want to bribe them, right? Which just cost too much to bribe everybody. It, it, it's yeah. just almost impossible to bribe 101 people, yeah. which is the number you have to bribe if yeah. you want to sway a 200-person jury. Yeah. And for capital cases like the trial of Socrates, for mm-hmm. example, it was a 501-person jury. Mm-hmm. 501 jurors. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let me come back to to the question I asked a few minutes ago. That was a great explanation. I I wanted to just circle back. So um, we we think of uh, the greatness of Athenian democracy. We also think about the victory over Persia. Mm. Like this little empire beats the the greatest empire in the world at the time. Between then and the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, this is what I want to repeat. So is there any significant change in the the spirit, the character, the uh, wealth of the typical Athenian citizen? Yes. There's a very large change between the Persian Wars, which ended in 479 BC, and the Peloponnesian War, which began in 431. So that's a roughly 50-year period. And during those 50 years, the Athenians went from a small-ish, not terribly strong, certainly not wealthy city, to an imperial city, a city with an empire Mm. built on the navy Mm. and the victory over the Persians. And that meant that the city swelled in population. We think the number of adult male citizens back in the Persian Wars was more like 20,000, and it was 50,000 by the time of the Peloponnesian War, and then more importantly, we think they went from roughly eighty or a hundred thousand overall population in the Persian Wars to three hundred thousand, the beginning of the Peloponnesian. So you see vast growth built on military power and money, and those meant that many Athenians could go from being pretty poor to being at least capable of 
purchasing military armor, horses, and so on. So by analogy, would it be accurate to say this is something akin to what we see between the American Civil War and World War One, or say between the between uh, the turn of the last century and you know the full breadth of the American economy bearing down on on the effects of World War Two, something I, like that. I think I think a process like that is probably relatively similar mm-hmm. to what Athens um, experienced. You have to keep in mind we're on very different scales. Sure, of course. In yeah. America, we've, of course, got millions of citizens by the time of the First Second World War. But, yes, there was quite a growth in power, in wealth, and in confidence. Yeah. The Athenians, by the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, were an incredibly confident people. Hmm. And they were confident because everyone participated in building that hmm. power and wealth. Yeah. Not just a few wealthy citizens. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Yeah. I'd like to take a turn here, and, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about Thucydides' method. So early on in his history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides indicates how he reports on events. So he's not at all the, the important events, and he doesn't even have records of some of the important events. But he, he writes down, and this is a paraphrase, what likely would have been said or, or done or transpired at these, these various events. So students today might well recognize that as story, but they might balk at that as history. And I wanted to get some direction from you about how we should think about that. So that's a, um, an excellent question and gets us into uh, Thucydides, the historian, And I guess I'd begin by saying he was very careful to tell his readers how he went about his research. He says that for the narrative of events in his history, he did a huge amount of research. And research at that time meant interviewing participants in the war. He did a lot of that interviewing, and he said that Often, people could not remember well what happened, sometimes because of lack of memory, sometimes because of bias. So he tells you right away, I tried to avoid falling into the trap of following someone's account that was not reliable. And the way I did that was to talk with a number of people who participated in a particular event. So he was kind of testing. Somebody would tell him something, he would kind of test it by placing in context or, or, or in measure uh, against what other people said. Right. And remember, he's writing the history of a war that's going on while he's writing it. So he's not writing ancient history. Mm-hmm. He's not even writing history 10 years back. He's writing the way a journalist writes a newspaper account. And he has the expertise, his military expertise. He's a general. And uh, so he understands uh, battle very, very well both naval and land battle. So the first thing he's at pains to tell us is, I was really careful in gathering different accounts from different people. So the narrative of my events, he says, you can rely on completely. He's very proud, not to say arrogant. And in fact, at one point he says, I've written this so that no one ever will have to 
worry about this again. <laughs> In other words, this is completely accurate. Um, that's hard to believe, but he is claiming that. So that's the narrative of events. But he says the speeches in my history are a little different. The speeches no one could remember perfectly. I couldn't remember the ones I heard perfectly, and neither could anyone else. But I've included speeches in my history. Obviously, he does that, first of all, because he wants to enliven the history and show us the great debates that took place before events transpired. He also wants to do it, very frankly, to show off his rhetorical ability, which is very high. He was a supreme rhetorician. He could write speeches that were as good as any ever produced. And it was a favorite thing in Athens in those days to appreciate strong rhetoric. It was a big thing in Athens, intellectually, politically, socially. So he says with the speeches... I tried to make the speakers say what I think was called for under the circumstances they confronted. Now, obviously, when he says that, he's hedging. He's saying these are not the ipsissima verba, the exact words spoken. They are shaped by my views of what I think the speaker confronted at that moment. This has caused endless debate among scholars. (laughs) Is this a way of saying, I made up these speeches in the way I wanted to? Or is it a way of saying, these are really close to what was said, and what I've done is to kind of give a good paraphrase, or anywhere in between? And frankly, the debate rages on as to how, quote, accurate the speeches are. I think perhaps the, the... most sensible way to look at this is these speeches are based on real speeches, but they are Thucydides' words. And so, for example, when we read the funeral oration of Pericles, which is very, very famous, which Abraham Lincoln used in creating his Gettysburg Address, we're reading Thucydides more than Pericles. But we're getting, certainly, the gist of what Pericles actually said at the time. Mm-hmm. So as a follow-up question, let me ask you this. We read uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War as a beautifully crafted classic text. It's a drama. It's full of, it's full of humanity, expression of humanity. So just on those terms, it's, it's a wonderful text to study. But as a professional historian, a classicist, among fellow historians and classes, does the does the history that he's written stand up? In other words, do we still look to Thucydides as a a good, legitimate, defensible source for understanding the war between Sparta and Athens? The answer is yes, mm-hmm. a, a definitive yes, more so than any other historical account from antiquity, and by that I mean. We can rely on this history 95% or whatever high percentage you want to give. Why? First, because it's contemporary history. He's writing things about things he saw and things he actually did and his friends and family did. So, first of all, he was a witness, an eyewitness and a participant. Secondly, 
when we can check him against independent facts, he works out very well. Mm-hmm. For example, he records several treaties between Athens and Sparta mm-hmm. made during the war. We actually have found the text of one of those treaties written on stone, the actual official state version of the treaty. And Thucydides quoted it precisely right, with the exception, I think, of one word. And that's immaterial. So when he records a treaty, I think it's the treaty he records, not some version of the treaty. And on most facts we can check, he was clearly, absolutely correct. There is 5% left over, which we think (laughs) he did not intentionally alter, but which we think he gave his own view of. And his mind was so powerful that he did shape events in the way his mind saw the events, as frankly any historian does. Sure. Because historians have to be selective. They can't report the 90 million things that happened in a battle. Mm-hmm. They report nine things that happened in the battle. And so when you select like that, you, of course, are to some degree distorting what actually happened. But I think the overall answer is we can rely on him. this episode of Classics. In part two of my interview with Hunter Rawlings, we'll continue our conversation on the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Classics. Classics.